when, you, when, you, when we look at 1 John, we're looking at God's love as well and the test of love, as you know, we've seen that. And so let us consider the truth of this love. And that's what John is showing us in, this fellowship, in the test of fellowship that he lays out for us is this reality of, of knowing that we are in fellowship, having confidence, but more than that alone, it's understanding that we are in fellowship with God by the test that John outlines for us throughout this passage. So that being said, let's look at 1 John chapter 5, and we'll begin our reading in verse 6 this evening, read through verse 12. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree in one. If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself, he that believeth not, God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Even these verses right here testify to the truth I was stating a moment ago. John is declaring the record of God and the witness of God to this record that he has given of his Son, and he is saying, as we know him, we understand these truths. And that's what John is emphasizing here. So let's look, let's look at specifically verse 6 uh, the, this evening. I'm going to really key in on that. But before we even get to that, we'll read that again in a moment. Let me, let me introduce this to you this evening uh, by way of review, of course. Throughout our, our study of 1 John, we have outlined eight tests provided by John which serve as a means to examine the evidence which a genuine relationship and fellowship with God produces within one's life. Now, I again want to say this to you because it's important to recognize this truth, as I've said many times. The tests that John outlines throughout this epistle are not standards to which we are being called to measure up to, but rather these are tests that are revealing the evidence within the life of one who is in genuine fellowship and relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And furthermore, as we have seen, we know that as John outlines these tests, and we've looked at this in detail, we won't do that tonight, but I do want to review just briefly mentioning it, that as we've looked throughout these tests in the scriptures in 1 John, we have seen that John uses the same terminology many times concerning different tests that he outlines, and then he says, oh, we know that we are in God when we keep his commandments. Oh, we know we are in God whenever we love the brother. We know we are in God whenever we do not fear judgment. And all these different statements he makes, but it's not that there's any one statement or one evidence that is the proof of genuine, authentic relationship and fellowship with God. It is the culmination of all of them together. And so it's all of this evidence which is the proof that we are in genuine, authentic relationship and fellowship with God. We look at the eight tests. I'm just going to mention them and give you the references. We're not going to read any of the scriptures tonight uh, concerning these tests. But the obedience test, verse chapters two, chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. The love test, chapter 2, 7 through 14. The life test, chapter 2, 15 through 17. The truth test, chapter 2, 18 through 24. The righteousness test, chapter 2, 25 through 29. The sanctification test, chapter 3, 1 through 10. The discernment test, chapter 4, 1 through 6. And the fear test, our perfect love, chapter 4, 15 through 18. So within the final chapter of this epistle, which we have already begun our study of, we see that John summarizes the eight tests he previously explained within this epistle. And in doing so, John provides overwhelming evidence, again, of authentic relationship and fellowship with God. Now, we see as we read through chapter 5 that the terminology and language John uses is very familiar to us, or should be if you've read through or study or been with us in our study of 1 John. Because John repeats, and using the same terminology, 
throughout this chapter in a summarization of the previous four chapters, specifically the previous three chapters, but including the first as well, uh, all this truth he has stated concerning the evidence of relationship and fellowship with God. Last week, one of the verses we spent time in was verse 3. Let's look at it. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. So the commands of Jesus are not burdensome, but are a source of joy for those who love God and have been born again. We've, we dealt with that specifically last week and the other verses also. But chapter, or verses 5 through 6, we read further. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. So again, we see that John's making an absolute statement here that who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. He's dealing here, of course, with the deity of Christ, that Christ is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. And the evidence of, of embracing that truth, not just simply confessing it with one's mouth, as we've seen, because even as John states uh, concerning confession, he's not talking about merely making an acknowledgement with, with words, but he's talking about an acknowledgement of one's life to the truth of the deity and lordship of Jesus Christ. The world, the worldly system, society, and culture is counter-gospel. And the world is anti-Christ, as John explains multiple times in this epistle. And in verses 5 and 6 that we just read, John explains that those who are born of God are victorious by faith, confession, and belief in Jesus Christ. Again, not just say a, a statement, it's biblically defined belief, which is entrusting one's well-being to, their spiritual well-being to Christ, depend, total dependency upon Him. So we progress tonight within our study, uh, beginning in verse 6. And within this division of this fifth and final chapter of 1 John, John expounds upon the record God has given us of Himself and His Son. And John explains the supremacy of God's witness over man's witness. No matter what others may claim, say, or profess, God's record is true and absolute. As John declared, God's witness is greater than man's witness. In verse 6 we read, This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. And then if you look at verse 9, If we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater. For this is the witness of God, which he hath testified of his Son. So here he's saying God has made witness of his Son, and he's given us record of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now within verse 6, John expounds again on the witness of God, specifically his witness in Jesus Christ. And there are two predominant truths that we're going to spend our time looking at this evening for us to consider within this verse. And they both are regarding God's witness and the record that he has given man concerning his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. First, let's notice this, and we'll have some some sub-areas to look at here. But first, John confirms the importance and culmination of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6 at the beginning of the verse. And this is, we'll only get to verse 6 this evening in our study. This is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. Now this is a repetitive statement, obviously. He came by water and blood, not by water only. He emphasizes that truth, but by water and blood. Now the water and blood are mentioned in relation to the implant. Uh, implementation, and the culmination of the redemptive ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ, who was manifested, of course, in the flesh to be Savior of man. So when God states here through John that this is the record that God has given, the testimony and witness of God, that Jesus came not only of water, water and blood, not water only, but water and blood, and emphasize that again, what does he mean by the statement Jesus came by water? Well, in Matthew 3, 11 through 17, let's read this passage. We'll be reading quite a few scriptures in, in, in some length to understand these truths this evening. In Matthew 3, 
We read, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. This is John the Baptist, of course. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor and gather his wheat into the garner, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan to, unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have no need, or I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now we're going to deal with these verses more in a moment, but let me point out a few things to you. First of all, notice, John says, I'm not worthy to, to baptize you, Jesus. He says, I, I, should be being, I should be baptized of you. And notice what Jesus says. For thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Well, what, what would he possibly be referring to when he makes a statement? Well, first of all, understand that there was a, a of course, the, the prophecy was given of, in Malachi, the, God, the prophecy is given, that, that God would send his messenger, and this, of course, was in the form of Elijah, which is, of course, John the Baptist, meaning he had the same spirit of Elijah in that sense, and he, he, he's sitting here saying uh, uh, to the people, that in, in this case, that this is the Lamb of God, as we'll see in a moment. And so he comes and he, he's, for, he's a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was going to prepare the way for, Malachi also says, for uh, his messenger, the Lord's messenger, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, the messenger, which is Christ. And so it was, it was prophesied. God had already laid this out and foretold that John would be the forerunner, and this is part of John's responsibility in his, in his ministry of declaring that this is the Christ, this is the Messiah, this is the anointed one. The introduction of the man Jesus at the commencement of his earthly ministry was by John the Baptist declaring that Jesus was the Lamb of God in John chapter 1, 25-34. And they asked him, and they said unto him, Why, baptize, why baptizest thou then, if thou be not that Christ, nor liest neither that prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there standeth one among you, whom ye know not, he it is who coming after me is preferred before me, whose shoes latched I am not worthy to unloose. These things were done in Bethabara, beyond Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me. For he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but... He that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. Here John is saying, I saw, I bear record, this is the Son of God. Now there's some things in this text that should cause you to pause and, and question. First of all, do we not know that Jesus and John, are they not, are they not related Okay, now think about this for a moment. You find where John says, I knew him not, but I was told by the one who told me to baptize, which of course is God himself, that the one upon whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one who shall baptize in the Holy Spirit. 
So John is saying, the only way that I knew that this is the Messiah is because the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit bearing witness and, and, and fulfilling that truth of that Word is the evidence that made me aware. Now, this is just a side note here, but consider this for a moment. The only way that any man will ever understand that Jesus is who He says He is is when God makes him aware of that truth through His Word. And that's exactly how it was for John the Baptist. John the Baptist couldn't even recognize, didn't know this was the Son of God until he saw this. This was the evidence. This was the proof. And it was according to the Scriptures, according to that which God had told him, I should say, and what Scripture, of course, taught concerning the Messiah. And therefore, John is aware of that. But notice John says he bear record, this is the Son of God based on this truth. The earthly ministry of our Lord Jesus was announced with his baptism. Now, we know at the birth of Christ... The angels declared to Mary, to Joseph, and then called the shepherds, of course, to go. And we know that the wise men sought after him and eventually came to him. And they knew that this was the the, the Son of God. They knew this was the Messiah. But yet in the earthly ministry of Jesus, because there's a span of time, we know at 12 he was at the temple. And apart from that, we don't really know much at all between his birth and his earthly ministry, apart from being at the temple at 12. That's really all we know about Jesus in his earthly life. But yet we find that there is an introduction, there's an announcement of the earthly ministry of our Lord. And where did that take place? Well, in reality, of course, it takes place as announced with his baptism. Jesus even went as far as to instruct John, as I mentioned a moment ago, of the necessity for John to baptize him so that all righteousness would be fulfilled. Meaning that John would fulfill his part in God's declaration for him concerning the righteous ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he was the forerunner, and he was going to do this, but also that Jesus himself, who is the righteousness of God, would be in submission to the Father and his will in all things. In Matthew 3, 13 through 15, we read again, Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him, saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus answering said unto him, Suffer it, to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. The baptism of John was a baptism of repentance, as John declared. Yet Jesus is sinless. So consider this for a moment. If John is baptizing unto repentance, because that's what John says he's doing, which of course repentance is the change of mind, the change of heart from unbelief to belief, concerning what? The one he is foretelling of, Jesus himself, the Messiah. So the people's view of of God is so perverted at this point in time as it was in Malachi's day, it is so tainted and so perverted and so skewed that Jesus, that John the Baptist is coming saying, repent. And again, I want to point out to you this briefly. He does not tell the people to repent of adultery. He does not say repent of even idolatry. He doesn't say repent of your immorality or of your robbery of God. No, he says repent. Repent what? And then he says, behold, the Lamb of God, here he is. And so your heart and mind must change about who this is. This is the very Son of God. And that is the baptism of repentance. Now, we know Jesus is sinless. And so Jesus being sinless, why would he tell John the Baptist, or John, to baptize him? So for Jesus to be baptized by John was obviously not for the sake of being made righteous through remission of sin but was an act of humble submission to the will of the Father and work of redemption. Jesus humbled himself that the Father might exalt him before all men. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11, what again, what is recognized and known as the Carmen Christi, it says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. 
Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And here it is in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus is Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice, he was found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient, and in that, in the death of the cross, even unto death, and in doing so, God now is highly exalted him. As a, as a man, the glorified man, Jesus Christ, is now highly exalted. Do not confuse what's being stated here. Jesus has always been with the Father, and always been exalted with the Father, but in becoming flesh, he was humbling himself, and in that flesh in which he humbled himself, now God exalts him in that flesh to where he is at the right hand of God the Father as the Redeemer, as the Savior of mankind. So all men have seen his exaltation through the record of the coming Christ who died for us humbly and now is exalted by God to Lord over all. He's always been Lord, but as the God-man, he is Lord over all. Because remember something, prior to the incarnation, which that's what John's dealing with here. He came water and blood, he's saying, remember? And so the water here is the introduction of his ministry in reality, and and it's the means by which the redemptive work of Christ was actually beginning, if you will, in all that he would do in, in, in making his way to Calvary throughout those three and a half years of his life of ministry, if you will. And so here you find that in the incarnation prior to that, Jesus did not have a glorified body. Jesus did not have a body at all. But then he took on flesh, and now he forever has a glorified body. So God has exalted him, the Father has exalted him as the Son of God in the flesh, in a glorified flesh. He is exalted, and that is the, he's the mediator between God and men, as Paul says, that man Christ Jesus, again, the man Christ Jesus, the glorified Son of God. And so we need to recognize this terminology here and not be confused into thinking that Jesus was anything else other than Lord for all eternity. But God has exalted him as the God-man. He's been exalted now as Savior and Lord. So Jesus came by water. His messianic ministry, uh, of course, was introduced by his baptism, which was followed by the Holy Spirit descending upon him and the Father declaring he was pleased in his Son. Matthew three sixteen and 17. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water. And lo, the heavens were opened unto him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So here you find that the earthly ministry of Christ, it began, it was introduced at the time of his baptism. Remember, in, in John 1, we, it doesn't say he baptized him as it does in Matthew's Gospel, but the same account is given where John is announcing that this is the Son of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then in chapter 2 of John, what takes place? The wedding of Cana, the first miracle of Christ in which the actual earthly ministry of Christ begins. But understand, prior to him humbling himself, even in baptism, even in the purpose and plan and will of God, in the foretelling of John the Baptist who would bring be the forerunner of Christ. And then John is saying, there's one who comes uh, after me that is preferred before me, for he is before me, he's always been. And then Jesus humbles himself that all righteousness might be fulfilled. What does that mean? Well, it was through his humbling of himself 
his humility that God is ultimately going to be exalting him. And, and notice it's interesting because he was born in a, in, a, in a stable, right? We know that. He was born in a manger, if you will, placed in a manger. And yet, then he, he lives his life. And now before he ever begins his public ministry, he humbles himself by having John the Baptist baptize him when John is a sinner and Jesus is not. And so there's a humility present even at the onset of his earthly ministry being introduced. And, and so we see that to be the case. Now, Jesus also came by blood, John says, though. And as the commencement of the earthly ministry of Jesus was by water, so in like manner, the culmination of his earthly ministry of redemption was by blood. For it was on the cross that the redemptive work of Christ was fulfilled. In John 19, 25-37, a lengthy passage, but let's read this. Now, there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleophas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciples standing by whom he loved, he saith unto his mother, Woman, behold thy son. Then saith he to the disciple, Behold thy mother. And from that hour that disciple took her unto his own home. After this Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, saith, I thirst. Now there was yet was set a vessel full of vinegar, and they filled a sponge with vinegar and put it on, upon hyssop and put it to his mouth. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath day was, high, was a high day, besought Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. And he that saw it bare record, and this record is true, and he knoweth that he saith is true, that ye might believe. For these things were done, that the scripture should be fulfilled, a bone of him shall not be broken. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Now when he said, it is finished, this was a cry of completion and fulfillment. Jesus, of course, as we know, was not conceding to defeat, but was declaring the victory of having fulfilled the Father's redemptive plan uh, for mankind. And the completion of redemption's work, was sealed by the fulfillment of the prophecy in which it was stated that Jesus would be pierced. In Zechariah 12.10, the scripture says, And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. The water and blood of which John speaks in this epistle was the father's record of his son, and is witness of the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ. Notice it's interesting, his, his earthly ministry is introduced through uh, baptism and submitting himself through this means of water, if you will. Not that baptism itself did anything for Jesus, we know it didn't, but it was a means by which God is declaring, this is my son, and, making, and John is now declaring by evidence of the scripture or the testimony of God to him that this is the very Messiah, and now he declares that truth, and then we find that in his death, he is pierced rather than his bones being broken. That scripture might be fulfilled. Not a bone of him would be broken. But yet now he's pierced in the side. And in the piercing, both water and blood flow. And we know it's the blood. It, it, life is in the blood, as scripture says. We know it took the shedding of blood for the remission of sins, which again equates to the death, but death by way of shedding of blood. And so it was through the sacrificial atonement that was made on our behalf that we now are redeemed. And so the, the water here speaks of the, the commencement of the earthly ministry of Christ, and the blood speaks of the culmination, the, the completion, the fulfillment of this earthly redemptive ministry of Christ. 
Then number two, I told you there were two things we're going to be considering from verse 6. And the first, of course, is John's declaration of the importance and also the culmination of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the purpose for which Jesus came in the flesh as we know. But then two, John also declared in verse 6 the importance of the Spirit's witness. Look at verse 6, the latter part. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness because the Spirit is truth. As we've already observed at his baptism, the Holy Spirit testified to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. In John 2, 30-34, let's read these verses again. This is a, he of whom I said, After me cometh a man which is preferred before me, for he was before me. And I knew him not, but that he should be made manifest to Israel. Therefore am I come baptizing with water. And John bare record, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it abode upon him. And I knew him not, but he that sent me to baptize with water, the same said unto me, Upon whom thou shalt see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, the same as he which baptizeth with the Holy Ghost. And I saw and bear record, this is the Son of God. Notice here with me. He says, I saw the Spirit descend. I knew the Spirit testified to me that the one upon whom the Spirit would descend and remain, this is the one who baptized with the Holy Ghost. This is the very Son of God. So who is bearing testimony that this is the Son of God? Oh, John is, but John's only bearing witness to that which the Spirit has testified to him. This is God's record of Jesus. This is God's witness of Jesus. And now we see it be heralded out as well by means of the prophecy of Scripture, the fulfillment of that prophecy, and the messengers whom God would send, as he also prophesied we would do. One of the primary purposes of the Holy Spirit, we must remember, is to testify that Jesus is the Son of God. It's very interesting to me, and we've dealt with this recently in, well, in the past month in our study of Ephesians on the morning, Sunday morning. But it's so interesting to me how people have, have attempted to provide some sense of purpose for the existence and presence of the Holy Spirit within the life of the believer. It's as though people think, oh, well, it, it, I have the Holy Spirit so that I can do miraculous things. I have the Holy Spirit so that I can make it through a day of life. I have the Holy Spirit so that I can, I can defeat sin, right? All, the, all this stuff they talk about. And totally, they totally ignore the emphasis of Scripture concerning the purpose and reason that Jesus has given us of His Spirit. And you find these reasons, really there's three or four primary purposes and reasons as to why the Spirit has been given to us. And we find one of the primary purposes of the Holy Spirit is to testify that Jesus is the Son of God. In John 15, 26, he says, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from, my, from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. So Jesus says, wait, he didn't say when I, the Comforter comes so he can comfort you. Does the comfort comfort? Yes, but what does comfort even mean here? It doesn't simply mean to, to make it easier along the way. It's that the Spirit of God fortifies us, strengthens us. But yet, what is the purpose here? Even in saying that, in giving the name comforter to the Spirit in this, in this text, Jesus is still emphasizing that the Spirit would do what? He'll testify of me. In John 16, 12 through 14, I have yet many things to say unto you, Jesus tells his disciples, but you cannot bear them now. So he says, I have much to tell you, but you're not able to receive it all at this point. You won't remember, you won't understand. How be it, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, 
for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. Notice what Jesus says. What is the purpose here of the Spirit? Oh, I'm going to send the Spirit because you can't bear all that I have to give you right now. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send my Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth. And that Spirit of truth is going to teach you, remind you of all things that I have spoken. And then notice what he said. He will not speak of himself, but he will testify of what he has heard, that which he has been given, and he shall glorify me, Jesus said. The Spirit doesn't glorify himself, he glorifies Jesus Christ. The purpose of the Spirit is to point our attention and direction to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's witness. God has borne record of who Jesus is, and now God is witness to who Jesus is, and his Spirit is the one who bears this witness, as John says in 1 John 5, 6. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness because the Spirit is truth. Well, what is the Spirit bearing witness? Of what is He bearing witness? To the person of Jesus. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. He is the Redeemer of man. He is God's provision for man who has, who has completed and fulfilled the redemptive requirements that God that, 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 were, that were present before God for our redemption. So he's saying here that this is the Son of God. So God has provided a record of His provision in Jesus, and it is His Spirit who bears witness of this record. So let's look again at verse 6. This is He that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood, and it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. So how does this verse here fit into the text which we've been studying. We've been looking at these evidences of, uh, of fellowship and relationship with God. Well, now John is showing us the truth, the truth of God's provision of Jesus Christ and the truth that there is only one provision of God, which is Jesus Christ. And so the idea of having fellowship, the idea of all that John has stated at this point is solely rooted and based in this truth as John began in this epistle talking of, of course, and, and, and the provision and sufficiency of this provision that God has made for us in Jesus Christ. And we will see as we continue, as we've read even tonight, that the, there are the, the, speaking of uh, the Father and the Spirit, the Son, how the, the, they, they bear witness. And then he says in verse 9 again, if we receive the witness of men, the witness of God is greater, for this is the witness of God which he testified of his Son. So what is the emphasis here? It's all testifying of his son. He has borne record of his son, and now he, ter- he testifies of his son. And then he says, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. The Spirit is in him. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his son. Again, God gave us this record of his son, and it is the Spirit that testifies and bears witness to and of this record. And that is the connection here. So what we see is John is laying the groundwork again, summarizing everything he's already stated. He's saying, wait a minute, remember he said, if it, multiple times already in the previous chapters, remember this is a summarization of all John has already stated. In the previous chapters, John has stated that he that believes Jesus came in the flesh, he is of God. He that believes Jesus is the Son of God, he is of God. He that believeth not is Antichrist. Remember that? Because he believes not. Now John is summarizing all this again, saying, wait a minute, came by water and blood. God introduced his earthly ministry as he humbled himself that he might exalt him and it is the spirit that witness to the record of God concerning the person of his son, our Lord Jesus Christ.
So this verse is really packed in reality. This one verse is packed with this truth as we read through and understand what is being stated. And so we go back to the importance of the incarnation and the reason and purpose for the incarnation and the fulfillment of that purpose in the incarnated Son of God. He who came in flesh as the Son of God. And so God's witness is true. And John is, again, is just affirming that fact, that truth that God's witness is true and here's what's the beauty of it. Understand, because this still goes back to the reality of these tests or evidences that are present. Notice this. God's witness is true. God's born record. But here's the beauty of this. The Spirit of God is the pledge, is He not? Of what? He's the token of the new covenant. There's a, every covenant has a token. Every covenant. And in this case, the, it's the new covenant. And what is the token of the new covenant? The Holy Spirit. Notice the beauty of what John is showing us here. Are you ready? And he's going to deal with this further later on in this chapter even. It's not just that we believe what God has said. Can we believe what God has said? If God says something, is that not enough? Of course it is. But this isn't John just saying, oh, you believe what God has said, therefore you're okay. No, he's saying, this is the record God has given. And those who have come to believe God in this record of who Jesus is, you're not left there on your own hoping you've got it figured out right. It is His Spirit that is now deposited within you that testifies to the truth of this record. And so in reality, in a sense, you see again one of the evidences here of the presence of the Spirit of God, the presence of truth testifying to the truth of who Jesus is.